Hey, welcome to Extra Tomorrows. I'm J. Scott Chapman. Today's guest is Christina Patterson. Christina is an ultra running coach, strength and conditioning specialist, doctor of physical therapy, orthopedic clinical specialist. She's also a former United States Forest Service wildland firefighter and smoke jumper. A smoke jumper being people that jump out of airplanes with parachutes into forest fires, so no big deal. <laughs> Uh, she also represented the United States at the 2016 Long Distance Mountain Running World Championships, where that team took fourth. Same year, she also competed in the Sky Running World Championships, where she took fourth. You can find more information about her coaching services at ChristinaPatterson.com. Without much more delay, let's get into it with Christina Patterson. Christina Patterson, welcome to the Extra Tomorrow Show. Do you prefer to go by Christina or K-Pat? <laughs> Most people call me K-Pat. Okay. okay. <laughs> but, yeah, but either way, a formality. A lot of people at work call me Christina. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll call you Christina for now. And if you hate it, then uh, but I hear everyone in town. They Everybody, say you should probably call me K-Pat. Okay. Well, K-Pat then. <laughs> so people won't think I'm from out of town. Or yeah, exactly. All right. Um. So before we get into sort of the coaching stuff and some of the things, your things around training, can you kind of give some of the background story? I mean, I think most people know you, you know, some people know you from doing sort of Skyrunner things. You know, that's how I first mm. heard about you. Mm. And then there's, uh, you know, some folks may only know you from like, say, physical therapy or um, paragliding. Yeah. Or smoke jumping. Right. So um right. so can you kinda give a what's the what's the before before story? Yeah, I guess that's yeah. W without extending it out too long, basically I did my undergrad in an exercise science at the University of Montana. So I went to, through the health and human performance program and got the exercise science um concentration and a lot of folks going into PT school will go that route. And so you do a lot of exercise fizz and you learn about sports nutrition and some of these more, um, you know, exercise prescriptions, some things that I actually hadn't learned in my own training prior to going to school for that. Um, and at that time, I was primarily a wildland firefighter. So I was working um, for the Missoula Smoke Jumpers and then learning about all these training concepts that would have been really nice to know. Yeah. <laughs> I know them going into Smoke Jumper Rookie training. Um, and so it was really fascinating because I was starting to learn like, A, all the things that I could do differently and would help me out quite a bit. And B, um, that I probably had a lot more potential than I really understood um, in terms of endurance. And so it was really exciting. I, and I got to do a lot of research at that time um, at the Health and Human Performance Lab with a couple of physiologists that worked with the Forest Service. And so we did a lot of like exercise um, you know, uh, VO2 max tests and that sort of thing on the smoke jumpers and, and a lot of, um, hot shots. We were doing some experiments trying to determine what the, um, what the, I guess the, um, the fitness qualifications for smoke jumpers and hot shots should be. And so it was really interesting. So I started to learn quite a bit about exercise physiology then. And during that process of going to undergrad, I took a class from Dr. Um, Stephen Gaskill, who used to be um, he he used to be a professor at the university, but also prior to that, he was a um, like an Olympic coach for the Nordic ski team. And, and he, during like exercise prescription one hundred and one, he taught us that 
you know, in terms of how to train Nordic skiers, um, what they found was if you do a ton of training at a really easy aerobic intensity and then a portion of your training at very, very hard or like anaerobic intensity, you can get a whole lot more out of the training than if you're just kind of like hanging out in that moderate intensity zone all of the time. And so, and I never knew anything about, you know, just like for fire, you basically just run with a group as hard as you can for an hour. And it just kind of sucks. Like I <laughs> like hated running, you know? Um, and I was, you know, always running with men who are, you know, very, very fit. And so I always felt very slow and, and, you know, and so then it, it dawned on me that if I went a lot easier, I could go a lot longer. And it was just this whole like introduction to endurance exercise. So that's kind of where that began, I guess that idea began. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yeah, that was kind of the beginning, like the, the, I, I guess the, the seed that sort of grew that started the plant was there with Dr. Gaskill's basic class and exercise prescription. But then after that, we um, after I left smoke jumping or while I was smoke jumping, I met a lot of women up here in Montana that did ultra running. And I thought it was really interesting because I never even knew anything. I didn't even know ultra running existed before I moved here um, and I moved here in like 2008. And so by the time I actually decided that I wanted to do like a longer distance run, I was already probably like getting closer to my 30s and so I'd started late like I definitely wasn't running early I didn't run in college I didn't do any of that I was a non-traditional student so then um going into ultra was super exciting because at that time it was very you know grassroots or a lot of really I guess there still are like some really fun local events like um you know kind of like you know across a year or stuff like that where it's just like this kind of interesting bunch of people that threw together a race and been doing it forever and there's this you know interesting history around it and so um yeah so I started trying ultra when I got into PT school um and mostly just because we were running for fun to get out of the classroom you know I mean that was it and then I did uh um 50 miler which you know is like one of the oldest 50 milers in the United States like I don't know how long it's been around, but now it's in different places in Pole Bridge. It used to be around Hungry Horse Reservoir hmm. and it was like flat 50 miles. Wow. Right <laughs> outside Glacier, right? Or, yeah. And it was like, and so for me, that was my first 50 miler and I was just kind of jumped in. My friend Katie and I had run a, a marathon and she was like, I'm, I'm committed to doing this 50 miler in a month. And I was like, I had just come off a of fire season. I was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go for it. And we ended up running almost the entire 50 miler together. It was wow. really funny. And nice. and we just kind of cruised along and, and finished it. And I think I don't you know, I don't know why I enjoyed that. <laughs> so you you weren't at the end. You weren't like never again. No. Yeah. You were I like, thought it was kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, what? it's weird about ultra. And I'm sure you've run into this so much with everyone. It's just like how you get done. And the minute you finish, you're like, these are all the things I could do better. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's like the next day or a couple of days later, you're like, there's so many things I could do different and do better. And I could probably, you know, run faster or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think a lot of times people focus on those uh what i could done better when it goes poorly but uh you know i think it's equally as possible when it goes well you're like oh i could have done it a little harder (laughs) a little harder maybe you know (laughs) yeah yeah that's interesting well i wonder 
how much of that um that smoke jumper training probably they inherited probably just from the military or something like that yeah where it's just like just try really hard <laughs> and then you'll probably be okay as opposed to i wonder if now it's kind of evolved like in what y'all were doing with your research there at the university and now it's more like a you know, um, a Norwegian approach, or I don't know what, you know, some sort of more zone two stuff, more, more sustainable, more reasonable approaches. Do you yeah. know if that's changed? In terms of like, like people training for smoke jumper rookie training. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that the majority of folks in fire now have, yeah, they do have more information about how to train the whole system. Um, but I think there still is a lot, there's still a lot of people who are training for like, hotshot criticals or for smoke jumper training in and of itself versus the job itself i see yeah and so um so for the fitness test kind of thing yeah training for the fitness test because mm -hmm. you have to pass a fitness test to be able to go on and learn how to jump out of an airplane and then do your month-long training through all of the different ins and outs of that so the, it, a lot of the training is you're building up your durability absolutely but you're also build, you know building up your strength so that you can carry the 110 pound pack you can do the, you know, at least seven pull-ups. You know, most people are trying to blow the minimums out of the water, be able to run the mile and a half much faster than the, you know, 11 minutes that's required. And so um, a lot of times going into rookie training and, and criticals, and a lot of the athletes that I coach are firefighters um, that didn't have much of an emphasis on endurance. But the job... And what we kind of see in terms of like the research and whatnot is the job itself requires a whole lot of endurance. And I think my the benefit I had coming out of not having a, a history in running and coming into ultra was I'd spent so many long days out in the fire line on my feet for you work for 16 hours a day and you're carrying a you know 25 to 40 pound pack and you're out digging line and you don't necessarily sit down pretty much ever and sometimes you're just you go on IA and you're out for all night into the next day for like a 32 hour shift and that's pretty typical um you'll work first like sometimes 16 to 18 days straight sometimes up to 21 days straight where you're not taking a day off and so those like long days on feet really bode well for first for you know fire folks going into like an endurance sport and so a lot of these gals that are coming like out of the hot shots or training for smoke jumping have this incredible like endurance base and they go to do like a 50K, their first 50K, um, and they'll do really well at it. It's amazing. And they have an anaerobic base because they've been trying to keep, you know, you have to have that balance as a firefighter. You have to be able to work forever and you have to be really strong and be able to do stuff really, really fast when it, when it counts for like initial attack. So I... I love I love coaching wildland firefighters who are also doing the endurance running thing because they really have no clue how incredibly fit they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's fun to work with uh, like women and men because they're just yeah. They, once they start to be able to train more specifically for that sp for yes, getting the aerobic part and getting the anaerobic part and getting the strength piece. Once they start to pile on those different layers and optimize their training for those different layers, then they're like, you know, like I have this one gal. And I love her so much. She's so she works so hard. She went into her her hotshot rookie season, so her first season on the hotshot crew, and she was voted rookie of the year, which had never happened for a female on that crew oh, before. Nice. Um, yeah, and I and now she's like a Sawyer on the crew in her second year on the hotshots, which is very unusual for well, at least when I was it, like at fire, it was very unusual for women to be on a, on a on a saw. So 
I, I think it's, it's, it's really, it's really fun to see. Like when you start to apply sort of that science piece of it, you start to apply those principles and people start to learn about their physiology and then they can really optimize it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I imagine, I gotta imagine too, that the mental piece has to be a huge part of it where they're like, they, they do all these things in the mountains. They're out there all day and all night. Maybe, I don't know if they're sleeping in the big tent or whatever, but like <clears throat> they're sleeping near a fire. You know, and there's like all this stress of like, if I don't get this right, then people are going to lose their homes and their livestock or whatever. Uh, but then, and then you take, you go to, you go to like Grizz or whatever, and you're like, people are going to feed me, <laughs> you know, and then I could stay in a hotel after this, like, oh, big deal, 50 miles, whatever. I mean, sure, it's a long day out, but like, yeah, you know, it's not that big of a deal is what I'm saying. Uh, you know, yeah. No one's going to die probably, <laughs> you know. It's so true. I think there's a huge, there is a huge mental component as well. And just depending on where you're at in the leadership structure too, there's just this complexity of like leading groups of people into a very, you know, like, you know, a, a, an environment that you have to mo you manage risk all the time. So you're constantly managing risk, whether you're like the first year firefighter or you're, you know, an incident commander. And so I feel like, um, yeah, when you take off that layer, you take off the radio where you're not having to listen to all the air, you know, air traffic of the helicopters and the, um, and the air attack and all the other crews that are coordinating to, for this fire effort. Like that alone, just that static noise all day long is very stressful. And so I remember that piece of like being able to take off the pack, take off the radio. And I was like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Like it was a huge, it was a huge thing for me. It was like, I love being out in the woods and just being able to be like just quiet. I don't have to wear long sleeves. I don't have to wear my Nomex and boots and hard hat and like this pack and all this stuff. And so that was a big piece of it for me was just being able to enjoy being out for that same amount of time, but in this like nice, quiet, peaceful sense where I just get to go and explore wherever I want and not have to follow in line of this like 20 people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was really, that part is really wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And even just like all the gear too, like, uh, you know, for folks that are used to, you know, mostly doing their runs with nothing on, you know, just their clothes. Yeah. And then when they got to, I got to practice for my race. I got to put all this gear on. They're like, boo, boo. And, <laughs> and you're like, oh, let me cry for you. <laughs> you have to carry that. Like, at least it's not an axe or a chainsaw <laughs> or shovel or something yeah. you got to run with or, or run for your life with. Right. And like, um, yeah. all those clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Now I feel bad about complaining about my uh, the heat during my race. <laughs> no, I mean that that's just it. Like those environmental components are so hard to plan for. I feel like that's a big piece of like our sport that we, you know, um, it's just that extra layer. It's not all about just being able to put on miles and time on your feet. Like mm -hmm. unfortunately, like every year is different between races. You might go back to the same race the next year and have a totally different race just because of the environmental issues. You know. And then going from here in Montana, like a relatively cold, like environment all the way up until like June or early July, and then trying to go over to California or high altitude for us is like in Missoula, we're at 3,200 3, feet. So to go up to 8,000 feet or even 6,000 feet, you're going to start to feel that altitude. And so the body only can adjust so quickly to so many different things. It can adapt and it's amazing. Like that's what we love about ultra is how incredible our body is and how much it adapts to all these different things but you can only ask so much of it and so I think that piece for me has been really that's like the journey is kind of learning about there's so much to learn about and there's so many different variables then it's mm -hmm. never fixed 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's really cool. Yeah, that is neat. I, you know, you can do the right things, but you you don't know how you're going to react to it. For instance, the altitude thing. You know, watches now they guess like, oh, you're this much acclimated based on your <laughs> oxygen saturation that it's measuring through the optical sensors or whatever. Yeah. And uh, and you know, for a lot of people, it takes them like two weeks or whatever. And when I was going, when I was out there uh, in Tahoe, it took me three weeks. Yeah. To get up to get up to speed on that, and I was like, well, you know, I was like, maybe I'm old, or maybe it's just how maybe I'm I will always have been like this when I was younger and just never measured it. Yeah. Um, and the same with like recovering from any uh any sort of thing or like heat heat uh acclim acclimatization climatization let's see if i can get that out <laughs> but um because i did a bunch of heat training but you know it was sauna but then i wonder like yeah but then the other 23 and a half hours of the yeah, day exactly. it's like like 20 degrees out <laughs> yeah, like is exactly. this i don't know if this is gonna work you know how how did you do your heat training and your altitude training so my heat training, I just did sauna, but I wasn't doing like, so the sauna at my gym, which is where I would do a lot of my running indoors at the, at the track, at the peak. Yeah. And, uh, but then the sauna in that gym is weak, like uh -huh. 140 degrees. Yeah. And, but the one at the racket club across the street is like 210 degrees. Okay. So I would get done running and then run across the street. But by then I'd be kind of cool. You know, you you're trying to keep that core heat up and then. So you don't have to spend as much time in there, but I could still only do 20 minutes because it was just so it's hot. Too hot. 210 yeah. degrees. I was like, yeah. So I did that for quite some time because it's there's other benefits. Yeah. But uh, Absolutely. you know, after I got done with that race, I went and went to a place that was really hot, like really hot. And after I got done with that, I'd go out running in 90 degrees and I was like, this is nothing. I was, was like, oh man, I should have <laughs> like just went to Mexico for two weeks or something. Like, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's really it. You're not exercising for or in living in that environment for that entire duration. And that's what we always run into with both altitude and heat mm -hmm. is that you're not just like you said, you know, you can spend you can get your core temperature elevated for the duration of your run and then maybe extend that out for another 20 minutes to an hour in the in the sauna. But, you know, two hours versus if you're doing it to 100 and you're doing that for five, four days, three, I don't know, yeah. days or however long that mm -hmm. you have to be out there. So then how did you do your altitude training? Oh, I just went out to I just went went out to Tahoe early. For, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And did you end up exercising at the altitude? Were you? Mm -hmm. But you're tapering too, so you're not. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I would. Uh, I mean, I was tapering, but I also didn't. I I wasn't very structured. I was self coached, and I was like, I was also like volunteering at the race, and uh, and I was like, oh, I gotta go do this run because I was, you know, I'd lived there before, so I was like, I gotta go to the top of Talak. I gotta go do. I'll go do this power line climb, which is not super long, but you know it's strenuous or whatever. And you know the views. It's just that's the whole reason I signed up for the race. So, oh, yeah. so I did that, and then I did. You know, I tried to like chill on all the other stuff, but there were a few like 16, 18 mile runs, you know, in the couple of weeks leading up to it. But I thought, gosh, if you can't tolerate that, then what are you gonna do? Yeah. You know, like <laughs> yeah. And I do it for fun, so it's like, well, let's go have fun. Yeah. So it was good that I guess you got to exercise at altitude as well, which is mm -hmm. always like a benefit for sure. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Those. That's just that's that's part of the the process of like preparing for these big events. You know, is like building up your volume, building up your tolerance for loading, and then and then considering the the environmental you know um, changes that you're going to go through, time changes for traveling. There's just a lot of components there to kind of juggle. When it all comes down to it, 
it's yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of unknown going into an event like that so mm -hmm. it's yeah well yeah and i wonder how like when i'm there it's hot i'm at altitude i'm running i'm like can you hand, can i handle all this like i was <laughs> like well i'll just sleep a lot and eat well and just chill as much as i can but, yeah you know there's no telling how that's going to go when you got yeah. when you're mixing three different adaptations at the same time. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Well, I think it's still really impressive that you're able to get as far as you did. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah and then, tough. yeah. And then you're going to across the years, which is mm -hmm. also in Phoenix, but not at the hottest part of the year. Right. Yeah. Well, still be like high 70. High yeah, of 70. Still going to be warm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But I don't have to go hard on that. And it's, you know, I've, I could put ice in there. I could get fresh ice every 10 minutes if I wanted to. Yeah. So yeah. there's that. And then that is, you said you're going for 200 miles on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the, but the loop is one mile. It's not a quarter mile track. It's right. a one mile it's, loop. Uh, yeah. It's, and it's got a little of this in it. And you okay. switch every four hours, switch directions. Oh, okay. So that's good. Yeah. I think the problem would be is like if you wake up, you're supposed to go the direction you were going until you cross the line and then turn around. Yeah. So I'm gonna have to put something down on the ground to remind myself because I'm sure I'll be like you know, out of it. So what was your just out of curiosity? Sorry to ask you questions. That's all right. The way I'm supposed to go, but <laughs> what was your? How did you um, plan for like your progression of long runs going into your 200? Did you have like a peak run or peak back to back or back to back to back? How did you? Go? Well, I I had signed up for Canyons 100K. Right. And I did like uh, because that was going to be a month or a little before, a little more than a month before Tahoe 200, before they switched the dates. Yeah. And so when I got there to the canyons, it was hot and we were still in the dead of winter here. Yep. And so I only did like 42 miles and it was getting hot and I was like starting to get nauseous and all that stuff. And I didn't want to take off too much of my recover. I didn't want to have to recover a lot. So I was yeah. like, you know, this is plenty. I was like 42 miles is a lot, it's you know, and it's, it's, yeah. So. I, I called it on that, and then I just did some big loops out here in the Rattlesnake, you know, did the Sheep Mountain, that kind of marathon loop you can do, and yeah. then some, I did a 50K here, uh, you know, Grant. Yeah. I did a 50, he called me up and he said, hey, you want to go rock 50K tomorrow? <laughs> of course I you said, did. let's do it, buddy. <laughs> so he ran all over the place and just did an impromptu 50K. Yeah. And just some little things like that. You know, I just, I knew that, it, I think a lot of people put this forth where it's like, it might take a little less running to do 200 miles than you would to do a, put together a good 100 mile because you, it's more pedestrian effort. Gotcha. And it's just you have to yeah. deal with all the other stuff because there's so many things that can multiply your race by zero. So yeah. like hydration, heat, altitude, what are your feet. Sleep deprivation. Yeah, all those things. Yeah. And so, you know, I was just like, well, I just want to be fit and strong and rested. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I practice with food a lot. Yes, so, that's a huge component. So yeah, that was that was what I did. But it, like I said, I was self-coached. You know, it, it wasn't an exact science, but I was just trying not to overdo it. And I'll, also, I'd like to know how you think about this. Is like I was like, I took a stab at a couple big weeks. Like I did a hundred mile week, my first hundred mile week ever, and then uh, that was a wrong guess because I ended up uh, being well. I ended up getting sick. Of course. Yeah. It and so, <laughs> but luckily it was like, it was like, you know, like maybe three weeks out, I did this hundred mile 
week or four weeks and then I, so i was sick for a little while so it kind of went into the taper so it was like that was perfect it worked out yeah. yeah but um yeah but like you know i'm like okay i've done 50 miles in a week lots yeah and 60 miles and 70 miles I'm like where you know how do i know that i'm not like leaving a lot on the table it's hard to tell because it's such a seems like a lagging indicator of like oh you overdid it like i might find out two weeks later you know what i mean yes so I how exactly do you do how do you figure that out well that's a really really good question and i think well, hopefully not messing with my <laughs> i i think this is one of the things that people struggle with the most mm -hmm. and it's and it's um basically what you're talking about is 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 acute and chronic training loads and so when you look at your acute training load, that's like what you're doing this week is how much training stress you're putting into that one week, like your 100 mile week, that acute training training load compared to what your chronic training load is, which is kind of an average of your training load over the, the course of. So if you look at it in terms of like some of the actual co coaching software and whatnot. Yeah, like training peaks. Yeah. yeah. Chronic training load is going to be your um, your average over the last six weeks. And so if you if you take that acute training load and it and it spikes out and it goes way beyond um you know it, like a certain amount compared to your chronic training load you're you're most likely gonna see your body resist you're de you're definitely overreaching or even getting to the point if you continue to do that overreaching you can get to the point where you're overtrained but most of the time what happens is that the body gets sick or mm -hmm. it starts to have a flare up of an injury. Mm -hmm. And so I see that a lot in my career, right? Because I see it in PT a ton. That's mm -hmm. what I, I see the most amount of my athletes that are training for a big event is they'll have some t degree of like an injury flare up because they had a huge change in their acute training load compared to their, their chronic training load. Um, and then sometimes I'll see um, with my athletes when they first start, we don't have a good sense of their chronic training load because they haven't been tracking it. And so I'll give them a little bit of training, but they're super excited to get right. out and do all their training. And we all are like that when we first start so towards something like a, a new event or we just signed up for something. We want to like just get on it right away. But unfortunately, sometimes what you'll see is somebody will go out and they might do the training. They might actually just add on some big day, like one really big, enormous day. And it doesn't even have to be running. It could be skiing or backcountry skiing or just like two days of snowmobiling or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you see their training stress score just like just go through the roof this huge spike in their training and almost inevitably i'll be able to tell that this person is going to end up getting sick and they'll get sick or they'll get run down and the next week will be like nothing in terms of their acute training load and i think that's one of the number one things that is really going to hold somebody back from progress with their their overall progression is they're going to constantly be going between a lot and a little and um balancing between you know the 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 classic sort of cycle that we see with people who are chronically injured is that they'll they'll um they'll do a race they'll get they'll be successful with it or they'll have some type of event they'll be successful with it they'll get through the first time kind of get lucky mm -hmm. and then they might have a flare up of an injury and so they take a bunch of time off and so they get you're you're losing your training your tolerance for loading the entire every day that you take off you're losing some tolerance for loading and you're losing some of your acute fitness and so every day that you take off is is kind of reducing your chronic training load is reducing your average amount of loading that you can tolerate and so when you start to get back into training you start to your or you start to rest your injury starts to feel better almost always we want to catch up or mm -hmm. get back to it as fast as possible and oftentimes what happens is that person will flare their injury up again and then end up back in that same cycle and it happens over and over and over again and you see it even in the best athletes you see it a lot actually in the best athletes and i think unfortunately 
they're under a totally different level of pressure because they have so many external pressures on them because it's their career, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but but besides that, I think we see that a lot in um, in in like in newer runners. We see it a lot with people who have um, a tendency. And this is really common in Montana, I think, because we have such gray, awful winters. And so people who do a lot of running for like the marathon, for example, they'll like build up starting in January, they'll start the class, they'll do the marathon, and then they'll just be done with running for the rest of the, the year or they'll have their normal summer and then they'll take the winter off and then they'll get, they'll think, oh, it's January, I need to get back riding for the, the marathon. It's very common to see injuries flare up during all those times. Um, and so I guess what I, um, what I do as a coach or as an athlete and what I've been doing since you know, I kind of started tracking my training or actually training for ultra, which was probably around 2013 when I did my first hundred. It was, um, I started looking at numbers the way that a researcher will look at numbers. And that's basically looking across the span of time, averaging those numbers, trying to determine what my actual averages are, and then trying to stay just above average on a, on a regular basis or trying to um, create progressions like phased progressions where I'm making things gradually harder and then coming back to recovery and gradually harder and come back to recovery. And when people are consistent with that, um, then they don't see those huge like divots in their training as much. And so they, even if they are overall averaging less miles, so maybe they're just averaging, like you said, like your 50 mile, 50, 60 mile weeks, 50, 60, 70 mile weeks, and they do that all the way to the 200 and they're healthy and strong. They didn't have any of those big divots where there's zero to you know 20 miles because they're sick or injured. Generally, they do really well. And they, yeah, I mean, Tom, like, so one of my athletes did um, Bigfoot this year. He did Cocodona last year. And this year he had, you know, Bigfoot's at the end of the year versus Cocodona's at the beginning of the year. Cocodona's 240, Bigfoot's 209. So he had more time from like hunting season to Bigfoot to actually put in those consistent training weeks. And he worked really hard, but he's not a really high mileage runner, but he was able to do a lot better and have a much better day or week (laughs) for 200, right? Three days, four days, because he put in that consistent, like those consistent miles every single week. And he did have peak efforts. Like there was definitely, there were definitely some peak efforts in there where he's doing some like long back to back to back. But yeah, I guess that not to get on my pedestal, but that is the that is the biggest thing that I'm managing as a coach and as a PT is trying to educate about that particular piece is building up your chronic training loads. Mm-hmm. I see this when I built, you know, I've used the training piece before and they have the the annual training plan you can build or whatever. Um, and it'll, you know, it'll allow you to, you know, I think they'll say, uh, you know, a good, a good increase is like one chronic training load point per week or something like that but then like uh, but then they'll also say well like but elite athletes <laughs> of course they are doing like i don't know three to five or something i don't know what it is <laughs> oh yeah the ramp rates yeah 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 the ramp rates yeah, yeah 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 and so um so there's that but also i think people this is something that the uh training for the uphill athlete folks bring in is that like hey this is built for like flatland athletes like for triathletes on roads and stuff like that so they was saying they were he was putting forth that you needed to you know if you had a pack that was more than 10 percent of your body weight then you had like two points for every hundred feet of gain that you do okay so for a thousand feet it'd be 20 points okay to your chronic training load because you can edit it you know um 
And then if you're just wearing a regular pack or, you know, less weight or whatever, then it's just like a, a point per hunt, you know, like 10 points for a thousand feet of gain or something like that. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting because, you know, I mean, you go out there, sometimes I've gone out there and bombed, you know, did a lot of training, did some, a lot of good training. And then, and then that chronic training led's dropping on me. I'm like, come on, I know. man. You know, it's like that unhealthy relationship you have with your watch when your yeah. Garmin starts telling you that you're unproductive. I turn that off. I turn that off. I like, I don't need that noise. Let me tell you what, let me tell you what that is, what you're talking about is called, and so that they call it with training peaks, they call it training stress score. And that's mm -hmm. the score that you're getting for right, each of right, your, right. and they have something like this for Strava too. Mm -hmm. And what it's based off of is two things. It's based off the duration of time that you're out and the intensity of your run. Right. Your heart rate. And your heart, it, it isn't based off your heart rate. No. That's why it's confusing. And so here's the thing. Your training stress score intensity is based off your speed compared to the speed that you would be running. It's my this chair. Oh, okay. <laughs> Squeaking. Um, the speed that you'd be running at your anaerobic threshold. Okay. So your anaerobic threshold is what you could be running for maximum an hour. You know, it's like somewhere like around your 5K, 10K pace, like somewhere in there. If you... If you have a really long day out in the hills and you're out for like 10 hours and you're moving at, let's say, 12 to 15 minute mile pace, your speed compared to your anaerobic threshold pace is going to be so slow mm -hmm. that your training stress score would be really low if it's based on your running training stress score. So in training peaks, what you can do is you can actually go in there and manually change your tra training stress score or to a heart rate right. training stress score and then it can be based off of your heart rate right. compared to your anaerobic threshold heart rate which is going to give you a totally different number so for yeah. example like that's lab, right because i i did yes. i did change mine for because it was it's usually pace training it's stress usually score. r yep and that'll and be I running up heart the base, rate. and if you change yeah. it to, and it'll go up and so yeah. i would do that if you're looking yeah. at your training stress score and you're running around hills or if you're running around in um you're you're going for like hiking and walking will also be based on your running, which is inaccurate. So like for example, like an athlete I just had, they're out hunting for ten hours and their training stress score for ten hours of hiking around with a pack was like fifteen. Yeah. yeah. I mean really. <laughs> and then like you look at um I switched it to heart rate and it went up to three hundred. Yeah. And it's the same thing with an ultra. If you look at a hundred and you look at like, oh, it might be like five hundred and then you you change it to heart rate, it's gonna go over a thousand. And so there's some components in there that are like, you know, sort of like if you if you know like what you're looking at there, it could be really helpful. But that number can be really skewed even when you're running, because let's say that you don't have your anaerobic threshold in training peaks is determined kind of it's determined off of what they're finding is your fastest run that you've done in an hour. And if you're always on trails and you're never running like a really um, or, you know, if you if you're always running like um slow for example your anaerobic threshold might be considered a little bit low for where it should be and mm -hmm. so you might score higher on your training stress than you think or vice versa so what i do with my athletes is i have them test they they run through their own tests on anaerobic and aerobic thresholds and so mm -hmm. we determine what their actual sort of heart rates would be at those different intensities and we retest that over time mm-hmm so athletes that I've seen back over the course of years, like I can tell that at, for example, aerobic threshold, which is where you're running under in your aerobic threshold, you're running 
at your easiest pace. So that's basically your zone two, easy heart rate. You're burning mostly fat. You're breathing in and out through your nose. It's almost all oxygen being um, used to create your, to burn energy. You're not, um, you know, you're not going anaerobic really at all at that stage. It's just very, very easy. It's um, kind of where we end up when we're doing ultras. You'll find like after the mm -hmm. first third or whatnot, you're pretty much just struggling to keep your heart rate high enough to mm -hmm. be aerobic. But that fully aerobic zone two, I have them test that. And it's a very easy test. You can find the test on Uphill Athlete. It's very easy to do. You find that heart rate. If you look at that over the course of years, if you're training consistently in zone two over the course of years, people will be able to train faster and faster and faster at their zone two. And then if you look at your anaerobic threshold and you get that test done and you know what your actual hard anaerobic test is and you know what hard is or above tempo, your, like, you know, your hard effort, your anaerobic effort, then, and you get that dialed in and you, you put those training zones in there, then your actual training stress score on a day-to-day -day basis is going to be much more accurate. So if you do that, then a lot of times, even if you're up in the hills, you're probably going to get a fairly accurate running training stress score. And it will be very similar between heart rate and running because your speeds there will be a little bit more accurate. Mm -hmm. It's just, it, yeah. So it's, it's something that like, you, you know, going into it, this is a really important thing for people who are doing lots of different types of training. So I, I don't have any athletes that just run. Like I have, a, everybody does some degree of strength training. A lot of people bike, ski, hunt. I mean, there's, they're all, they're running is one of their main components, but it's, it's never their primary component. And so in order to look at your training stress scores over time and that acute and chronic training load, you have to take into account all these other modalities of exercise. Otherwise life would just be super boring, you know? Mm -hmm. So what we do is we kind of, we look at, like I kind of calculate out like what would be a reasonable progression for this person in terms of training stress score, in terms of their total hours or total like miles, their longest run, like how long should their longest run, like how long can they reasonably progress this longest run? How long, how much can they reasonably pro progress their back-to-back -back longest run? And then once we kind of start to get that that information, and then we can start to really plan out those weeks with, a, with much more precision so that people aren't just like guesstimating what they should be doing based mm -hmm. on what they've done in the past. And so that, I think that kind of hopefully like sheds a little bit of light on how like iffy those numbers can be if you don't fully understand like what, I, I get a lot of athletes that are coming in from just using the Strava and they're looking at like their relative fitness scores. Right. Um, and that one could be a, a little nicer. And it's for me, they're like, oh, you're just increasing so much. <laughs> a training, training or uh, training peaks is like, ah, you're a bum, you know? Yeah. And I feel like it's unfortunate because it's, it is, it's like this data that is, it's fairly accurate. I mean, the data, the technology is pretty good. It is guesstimating probably pretty close to what your anaerobic threshold is, but it's not, it's not completely precise. Yeah. And, um, and it's not going to give you, it's not going to give you the best information for planning your training, I, I don't think. At least that's my opinion. Yeah. I should maybe well, not put that out well, there. Well, right? here's the thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's like the most useful. So like, you know, once you've got experience, you can be like, you know, for instance, okay, my, my heart rate strap turned off in my run yesterday. And so I knew I was going like 120 something, 130. Who was in there? And then it was like, you know, 162. I was like, get out of here with that. Um, exactly. And then, so then my training stress score was like huge. Because it was like, you're anaerobic. Yeah, it was like you're, uh, you know, four beats above your max heart rate. Right. You know what I mean? Like for, for an hour. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah. and so because I've experienced, I can be like, ah, oh, that's baloney. That's hooey fooey. 
But uh, the people that have less experience, they kind of need like something like the data to be correct so they can be like, okay, I'm doing this right. Is, you know, am I in the zone too? Because they, you know, they don't have the feeling yet. They don't have yeah. the experience yet. And yeah. unfortunately, it's like the people that need the information the most, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, always the case though, I should Yeah. Like. <laughs> it's always the case. But yeah, and then, you know, I think a big piece of it too is understanding. This is one of the hardest things it, it, that of, like to convince people to do is to slow down. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's, it sounds like you've learned, you know now, you've done the long run. But when I'm first starting to work with athletes, especially athletes that want to do a long race, but they continue to want to maintain their speed, which is two completely like dichotomous goals. And they're very difficult to do. And most of them, you know, a lot of times it's fire folks because they need to be able to maintain their anaerobic fast, fast twitch, like power and all of that. They're mile and a half speed, but they also want to go run a 50 to 100K in February and then still make it to criticals and be faster than last year. When we look at that kind of um, that spread and you're looking at wanting to increase your endurance, wanting to increase that base that people talk about, it really means that you have to slow down in order to keep your training stress scores under control. If you want to increase volume and you have to spend an enormous amount of time going easy and keeping it very, like, very, very, um, you know, chill and very under control so that you can continue to put on more and more and more volume because your training stress scores will be low on those easy runs. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard for people to really slow down that much, especially in the hills, like especially in the hills, because if you as soon as you start, if you're watching your heart rate and you're in your experience with watching that if you know what a, your easy heart rate's supposed to be and you start going uphill right away if you're not an experienced uphill athlete you're going to start to your heart rate's going to start to climb and you're going to either be ashamed to stop running or you're going to be somebody who's going to be looking at your heart rate and being like oh my gosh do, like i have to slow down anymore i have to slow down anymore to the point where you're like this is demoralizing you know i mean it is a little bit hard in the beginning but then once you start to work on it it's amazing how much you'll see yourself improved to the point where you're running around and you're like, my heart rate's really low and I'm still running. This is like amazing. And that's what I'll see with people if they're really disciplined about it. But it is hard because it's psychologically really hard. Mm -hmm. Like uphills, um, see that a lot. Downhills, psychologically, what you see is a lot of people, um, they chill out too much on the downhill. So downhill's the opposite. Like we see a lot of people who are really cons like conservative. They see it as a break or they just are scared because they've gotten injured in the past. And so there's, there's like that kinesiophobia like type of reaction where they start to like lean back and break in and start to slow down on the downhill, um, kind of muscling it, if you will, which yeah. is the same thing. It's we slower do. and harder. Slower and harder. It's <laughs> the same thing we do when we're skiing. That's why our quads start to burn. We like lean back in the back seat. So I think that's what's so exciting about being able to see people like see people's metrics, see their objectives and be able to, to kind of help them along the way is that you can start to pick up on that, those little things. You know, it's like, do you help somebody focus in on cadence or do you help them focus in on like, let's maybe stay more in your aerobic zone. It's really hard to like, you can only work on so much at once, you know? And so again, going back, one of the hardest things I think to have people do is to slow down. Yeah. And anybody do, who's training for a hundred, I mean that, or a 200, it's like, you have to just accept, accept that you're going to have to learn how to run more efficiently at a slower pace. And I I don't know if people are thinking or training that they are fast. They've been fast in the past. And so all they're going to do is try to increase the amount of distance that they can run fast and see how long it takes before they fall out. 
I'm not sure if that's the, the psychology because I didn't grow up like in a real, I didn't grow up like doing cross country or really fast short distance running. So I'm not sure like if that's sort of how people are leaning, if that's what hap happens. But I know that when I've asked folks that are used to running at a moderate tempo speed all the time to slow down, it's really hard for them. Mm -hmm. And it, it was hard for me to learn that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, there's, I think with the kind of folks that you're working with, you know, they're, they're kind of like, they're gung ho and they're like, oh, I'm a badass. I'm going to go out here and fight some, <laughs> jump out of a plane and fight some fires. <laughs> and so, yeah, I get that. But there's also, I think, to your point where you said um, people can only hold so much in their mind at one time. For me, it helps to, I'll just have another goal when I'm going out the door. If, I've, if I have to go on like a super easy run, like RPE two or three out of 10, yeah. then I'll be like, today I'm going to practice whatever. You know, like with yeah. my food or like messing with my poles, taking my poles out, putting my poles in, taking my poles out, putting exactly. my poles in. That's a or like, um, you know, my cadence or like some kind of form cue or something like that. Because yeah. like you said, you can't you can't be also thinking of that and like Liz Hall ass or whatever, <laughs> you know, like. It's true. Yeah, that's really true. And, and you're right. A lot of times, um, like when we're doing our endurance runs, you know, the what we'll have a lot of times people have to work on nutrition. Number two is probably figuring out nutrition, like that piece. Mm -hmm. about what you eat and how to fuel yourself on a long run. And it totally depends on the distance because a 50K effort is going to, you can fuel that a lot differently than you can fuel a 100 miler or a 200 miler. And so um, starting to practice with the fuels is such an integral part. That's a really good point. And, it's, and it can. And I think that's one of the number one things that takes my mind off of, of the miles when I'm in a race situation is I'm always watching time and how long it is till I need to eat again, till mm -hmm. I need to eat again. And I'm like, oh, thank God it's only like, I have eight or 10 minutes before I have to eat again. I mean, that's really what's going through my mind. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really good point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was, uh, there was, you know, back in the day I was reading some of your race reports. <laughs> oh man, that's been a while. So from like 2016 yeah. to the US long distance mountain running your mountain running team yeah got fourth in the world the team did yeah the team yeah that you were on yeah yeah um <laughs> in slovenia yep but then I'm you were third also, american and then you were talking about 2016 you, you got six in the sky running world championships yeah and one of the things you were talking about that you were thinking about during that was like mike wolf saying uh was it oh. just run don't think yes and yeah. that was like when you were in a really rough time you're having a tough from the beginning of yeah. the race, having a tough time. And then yeah. it ended up working out. Yeah, absolutely. That's, it's so interesting that you keyed in on that because that was a, that was a very, very powerful statement for me in that, in that time of my life was don't think, just run. Mm -hmm. Because it was very, it was the most competitive season of my whole life was that year, 2016. And I had a lot going on and I demanded a lot from my, God, apologies to my fault because he was my coach during 2016 and it was a lot I mean I was traveling all over the world for all these different sky running competitions and that one being the sky running world it was the world championships it was the buff epic like 110k I think in the, the Spanish Pyrenees and it was the hardest race I've ever done in my life I had like 24,000 feet of gain or something like that and it was I mean the weather was supposed to be terrible we had a lot of rain up high and then really really hot down low and coming into it I had a lot of stuff going on and and I was trying to talk to him about my strategy like what I oh, this is what I'm thinking is I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do this and he's like he was just like straight up tired of my BS I think and he was more than anything just trying to just like be like don't worry about it you know just like just don't 
think, just run. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we need to just enjoy the fact that we get to run for a whole day. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's it. That's all we have to do. We don't have to go to work. We don't have to drive anywhere. We don't have to do and and I think it it was insane. Like I got into this zone where for like seven, eight hours, like I barely even remember the first eight hours, the first like, you know, I think at that point I was like 50K of that race. I was running behind this gal that's like sponsored by Red Bull, you know, she's from Brazil. I mean, everybody in that race was like everybody. They're from all over the country, all over the world, like different countries. And they're all famous. And I remember running behind her for a long time. And then I was just thinking like, this is so surreal that this is even happening. And I'm in such an incredible place. And it just stayed, it helped me stay present, like in the moment versus being worried about what was going to happen or what had happened and where I was at in this field of athletes. And staying present in an ultra is like one of my number one goals in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Every run is to just be able to let it go and just kind of stay in the now and stay like focused on what I'm doing, what I need to do right now to take care of myself. And like, I think that that psychology behind that was like really powerful. So yeah. Anyway, thanks for reminding me that because it does. It's like I've had like a couple comments like that that stuck with me over the years, and that like that comment from Mike Wolf pretty much like sums up our coaching relationship our entire year. Nice. Yeah. But well, yeah. I think you know when you're training, it's good to like overthink everything. That's a perfectly appropriate time to overthink things. Yeah. But then. I was running a race on Saturday and my shoelace came untied. I was having the performance. I was feeling so good over here at the Elk Ramble, you know, and I, it's on the downhill part. You know, it's the last three miles or screaming downhill. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. And I had even tied my laces and then pulled them tight because it was wet. Yeah. And then tucked them under, you know, yes. the loose part. So it, this would not happen. And then oh, I could feel it whipping on me. I was like, and you're you going to, and I was like, I'm going to eat. Yeah. I was like, I am going to eat dirt if I do not. So I, and I cursed and I did it and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> while I'm doing it, looked at the other one and I was like, and I was running and I was about to get mad and whine to myself. And exactly, then I was like, yeah. and then I was like, I was like, just go, just go, just keep going, just keep going, just yeah, keep going. Cause yeah. I think that's the one that it's easy for me to get into is to, uh, you know, to whine and be like, why is it so hot? Or like, oh, these people passing me or whatever to get yeah. irritated. Every one of those and, things. And it never makes me run any faster. No, no, <laughs> never. Uh, it's it's like the only thing that makes you run faster is is having a really positive attitude. It's so bizarre. It's like such a it's such a wonderful thing about Ultra is that it's just like, and it sounds so hokey to even say it out loud. And I talked to my 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 athletes about it, but it's like really is like almost like a meditation it's like this like you have to ground yourself constantly because of those things and it's like you know you tell somebody to run their own race but it's a whole other thing when you're in it and people passing you or they're going out straight out the gates at like a six minute mile and you're like what this is an ultra like i don't want to run that fast or you can see the next person and you're just like "Ah, i need to like respect my heart right now i'm only in the first third like there's so many things that come into to play in that that are that's exact that's a perfect example you know like you get angry you get upset about the smallest silliest thing and your heart rate goes up your cortisol starts to rush if that had been an ultra you could have really just like your body you could have just sucked all the like blood sugar out of your bloodstream and then had a major like a major down you could have started tripping and actually really hurt yourself you know mm-hmm. it was like 
I see that so much with people. They'll get behind on nutrition because they're so focused on like what what's going on in the in the environment around them, and they'll lose track of how often they've been eating, and they'll start to get low on blood sugar, start tripping, start hurting themselves. If I if I see people out on the course and they're starting to trip a lot, or they're saying they they are, I'll like ask them, "Have you eaten recently?" Like because mm-hmm. your blood sugar is probably getting low, and um. And yeah, I mean, those things are so like that mentality of ultra running is it's but it's a beautiful, beautiful thing on the other side of this when you're so focused and flowing through it that you're just like in that terrain and and like that's where you're at. Mm-hmm. Like that is just like where you're at. There's nothing else in your mind and you're just like flowing over that terrain and it feels so good. I mean, that zone is like hard to explain, but it is. It's like what they say about it being like this disconnect from time and I mean, like time and mm-hmm. it almost changes the whole, you know, yeah, like seven, eight hours can go by. You can feel it's it's just a, it's a yeah. whole different thing. Oh, you got me pumped up. I want, I, this is my rest day. I can't, <laughs> can't be getting all pumped up. I know. The, uh, exciting. One thing too that I was surprised by, because I've mostly been doing from right out the gate. I started running in like 2009, about 2009. And, uh, you know, Born to Run, it came out yeah. and I was in. It was a really big trail running club in Texas uh, called the Hill Country Trail Runners. And so nice. someone was like, oh, you should run a 50 miler. I was like, oh, sure. And so <laughs> I did that. And so I didn't do any of this, you know, faster races or anything like that. So I wasn't experienced with that. But now I'm starting to do it because there's so many of these little ones around here. And yeah. it's good practice where I can be like, yeah, you know, race strategy and, you know, kind of spreading the peanut butter thin all the way across, you know, all yeah. the way to the end. Yeah. And uh I never thought that I would also get that flow feeling from like, you know, that first third in a shorter race, like that 10 miler. I was, you know, you get to the part where it's it's so hard and you're like, okay, I think this is as hard as I can push for the rest of this race. (laughs) Yeah. And it's kind of nice. You kind of settle into like, even in the most painful paces, like Mm -hmm. even in a 5k or something, it's so funny that you can like, okay, this is what it feels like, you know, and you don't even do that sometimes, sometimes you don't be like, oh, I should slow down. You're just like, this is what it feels like. We'll see if we, maybe I could push a little harder right here. And yeah, even, and it's just in like, it's crazy that you can feel calm and enjoy such a thing when it can be kind of violent and (laughs) over the top intense, but um, yeah, yeah. that's so true. That's so true. And I think that and I, yeah, I com- and I com- commend you too on doing those short distance races because I think that sometimes I actually tried some of that this year, like short distance for me being like 20 miles <laughs> because, you know, it gets to the point where, but I, there's, yeah, it's such a wonderful thing to kind of put yourself in that position where you do have to go outside your comfort zone and then kind of cook in it. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful because you're like, you're learning that mentality of like, this is okay. I can like, um, you know, put off that you know, that sort of like response, that guarding response. It's like, I have to protect myself and slow down. Like you really, you know, that's a, it's a, it's an important thing to practice that and try it every once in a while. Mm -hmm. I know it's, yeah, that's good. Well, I wonder, cause I see, you know, like doing the city to sky 50 K, you know, people there are going out and doing their conservative first third. And it's like, (laughs) you know, like the people that are winning it, that's going to be like six, seven minute miles, you know, before you get to the mountain. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, and so I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what, you know, between that and like 15 minutes per mile, I'm like, where is that for me? You know? And so I'm like, well, maybe in these shorter races, I could practice that and start to feel like, 
okay, this is moderately hard and this is moderately harder and <laughs> a little harder and, you know, try to find those little things. Because yeah. for me, it's either, you know, there seems like it's either like, I don't have many gears. It's like, go fast or <laughs> walk. I don't know, you know? <laughs> well, and it's good too, because then you know what you're capable of. And so when you do get to the end of that long race and you're within that last like hour or, you know, it depends on the race, but that last third and you're actually feeling strong still, if you did a really good job executing the first third and second third, then by that third third, you should start to feel like I can, you might be passing people. You might actually have a really good, strong, you know, stride going. You might be able to know what you're capable of and think about that and know mm -hmm. about what it feels like to push hard. And you might not be moving as fast as you've ever done the 10 miler, but like being able to stay in that and know I can make it to the finish now. I can actually push. And that's really, I've seen some of my fastest times on these courses in the last like 5k or whatnot. Like, you know, just, it's so interesting how you can be out there running for 17 hours and then have a legit race in the last like 8k, like against yeah. one other person and still pull it off. I think that like some of my experiences with that have been just unbelievable where I can't believe like in the, I almost, you know, in the past would almost always be that like, I'd be able to like fine and it'd be like I, I it's never over till it's over is what i'm saying you know so mm -hmm. like it's really great that you can practice that well you kind of talked about, about it too when you held off hillary allen in that that same race right <laughs> that's exactly what i was thinking about actually. holding off the hilly goat too that's pretty good and the way you described it made it sound like it was kind of a oh. protracted ending you're like well we went over this bridge and then we had to turn around and i think we did oh, a 180 and then went over here yeah. and like we could see it of course we had to go all the way around the <laughs> other side and like yeah it was a full on race. I mean, I was, I can't believe how fast I was running. And that was like after seven, it was over 17 hours of doing that 100K. I mean, again, it was like 20, I think it's 24,000 feet or something. Everyone, like all the women were just like crashing and burning during that race. We all like had a really hard time um, getting really sick, you know, with the high altitude and like the heat and then coming up into the high altitude, the cold, and the like changes in temperature. But you come down out of there and you're coming back into the town and you're descending for like, what feels like forever and and somehow and she is such a strong competitor like there's if there's like there's an absolute truth about Hillary, Hillary Allen is that she is such a strong competitor she's so competitive that she can pull this stuff off without even a hitch like she always does it she always has like this incredible strong finish and she came from behind out of nowhere and just like and right away past me and then I stayed on her heels for a long time until I had a chance to like get in front of her and I knew it was a move. It was a power move. Like people will do that, right? They get in front of you because they're like, you know, I'm in front of, I'm going to pass you because I'm not going to stay behind you. And, like, and so I got in front of her and it was the hardest, it was the hardest race that I have ever done. Like the hardest, like eight to 5k effort I've ever done. I mean, we were going down the craziest straight, you know, like they, cut, they have these switchbacks on the road and you're basically cutting the switchbacks and there's all these rocks and like this really technical terrain and it's dark. We've been running forever. And we were taking really risky chances, like getting down these really technical trails because it just turned into this like race for sixth place. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. And I think like in her mind, I mean, she really had the potential to be able to win that race all out, like to be first place. And she probably had a hard day. Um, maybe I had a good day that day. But I mean, when it came down to it, like it, like it, once I finished, and I was surprised like that I could actually pull that off. And that was what it was. It was like knowing that I could keep pushing and pushing and pushing at whatever that pace was, which for me at that, I mean, it was probably like seven minute miles or something like that, but it, which felt 
fast at that time frame. It is. I mean, you know 18, what I mean? Mi- at your, I'm just like, and it was it, it, like it feels like you know I don't even know what it would feel like to be in um a, like a for like a more competitive event, but that felt like the you know epitome of competitive events for me right there, and it was like. You know, but when I finished, it was absolutely like a huge triumph for me. And it was and I just remember like you get across the finish line and like cl- classic ultra, you know, it's just like you're just done and it's quiet and it's dark and like yeah, nothing's yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah. But it was such a huge like it was such a huge thing because I found that I found something inside myself that I would never have found without that competitor. And that's one of those things about ultras that even if you're not a competitive person, even if you're not top, like I wasn't top in the world right then, but like if forever. <laughs> but if you think about what you get from competing against other people you're all you get together with all these people who are nerdy about the same thing and in skyrunning it was especially this niche of a niche because you're like in this whatever this extra special niche of a niche ultra distance mountain running or whatever Mm -hmm. mountain running inside ultra it's like this is own thing in europe and and you're like pushing each other and if you keep racing against the same people over time you get to find like what your strengths and your weaknesses are and i mean it's 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 such a cool thing because you would you never push yourself as hard as you do in a, in a race ever because you're around other people your your perceived exertion is reduced mm-hmm. so there's that piece of it and then there's the piece of it that you know you're you're gonna always go longer and for some reason you're always gonna run a little bit faster than you could you can in training and I and I think that that was one of a that was one of the reasons why I loved 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 that sport I loved sky running and I loved racing in those races with those girls that were incredible like Hillary or Martina Valmasoy or, um, you know, Mira Rye or Emily Forsberg, like those women are so incredible. And like being able to run with them, you'd be able to kind of push yourself or imagine this other level of running mm-hmm. that you just don't see in your day-to-day life. You know, you just don't see that cruising around on Sentinel. You're not going to see somebody like, yeah. So that's, that's literally able to maintain like these incredible vertical speeds. Like I, I, that was just, a, it was like, not just the travel, it wasn't just like the travel, it was also just getting to run am- amongst these like like-minded people who love running up and down the super steep like technical terrain. I love that. Um, and that's, again, what I think is so special about Ultra is like, you know, people like Grant or Tom or you that get to go out and run with people who are like also going out to do these ridiculous long runs and crazy places and mm-hmm. somehow pull it off and then like walk away after and you go back to your normal job and your normal life everybody at work thinks you're crazy Mm -hmm. (laughs) but like yeah but then when you're with your people it's like this is super cool like they these people get me (laughs) yeah i mean because yeah when you tell people i call them civilians or whatever you tell people that don't do ultras or whatever you tell them what you did you know if you told them that you know i think a lot of people you, you get this look and you realize that they don't get what you're saying they just saying, and they're thinking the same thing about you. They're like, he's what he's saying. It, it doesn't mean that, like, <laughs> like that you ran a hundred miles. Yeah, or something. What, what are you they're like? Oh, he means something else. I don't know what it is, but I'll just nod and smile <laughs> or whatever. Must Wait. be tired from a little fast ultra marathon or whatever. <laughs> How do you even conceptualize that? Like, if you haven't done it, it's a really hard thing to imagine. I can't imagine a two hundred. I don't know how you guys can. Well, I've done do it yet. <laughs> Those are, it's just, it's such an incredible sport. Yeah. People are, yeah. The human body is pretty amazing. Like what it can adapt to. Yeah. Let me ask you about your thoughts on, um, on strength training. I imagine it's gotta be a pretty big part of the, you know, people getting ready to carry a hundred pound pack or whatever. (laughs) Um, and it can't be, I 
you know, this is the thing that I see in running that I don't get yet. I haven't still wrapped my mind around is I see all these people doing strength training and running and it's like this, uh, they're playing with rubber bands and they're never like progressing. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> playing with the rubber bands and then they, but there's never, there's, there's that, you know, and then I'm like, mm, wah, wah. like, you know, when you see strength athletes, you don't ever see them messing with rubber bands unless they're doing PT or something. Right. And then, um, and then they're never like, it doesn't seem like they're, I never see anybody talk about progressing yeah. in their strength in running. And I never see them saying like, okay, now I've reached as far as I need to for me to be a good runner. And um, so I'm now I'm just going to maintain <laughs> or, or whatever. Yeah. But, the only person I've ever heard talk about this is, I think it's one of those uh, Norwegian triathletes that people are going crazy about. And he basically said, he was like, I never do any strength training. He was like, there's nothing wrong with me. So there's no reason for me to do this. Like, I have too much work to do already. And he's the same way with all the recovery modalities. He was like, I can't take time for a massage or compression boots or whatever. He's like, I got to either sleep or eat or work out. He was like, I don't have time for all that other stuff. And sure, I mean... This is like one of the best triathletes of all time. So he is an outlier. But yeah. there is, a, I think, a grain of truth there, too. Like, well, like, does everyone need to do it? And if they are, like, should they be approaching it with some sort of, you know, goal of, like, progressive overload? And, you know, and yeah. so what do you think about all that? Oh, my gosh. That is such a good question. And, and it is loaded, obviously. Like, we're, we're, you're, you're right. There's a lot of different opinions on it. But I think we can we can honestly say at this point that, Research is really is really pretty clear at this point that runners will do better if they're doing some degree of heavy loading. And um, if you just want to kind of succinctly kind of wrap it up in one statement, that would probably be what we would say. I can honestly say that um, that strength training in conditioning, if I I've I've done this, I asked three different people, I asked Mike Wolf, and I asked my one of my um, one of my clinical uh, instructors who was the strength and conditioning coach for the Nike Oregon project, which is no longer, but used to be, um, you know, basically the Olympians that are running for Nike. And I've asked people, what do you see? What's the definition of strength and conditioning? And you're going to get a different response from different people. Some people will think conditioning is like, is like training, like doing your anaerobic workouts and your band stuff. And some people are going to say conditioning is being able to like metabolic conditioning or like everybody's going to answer that question slightly different. So I'll tell you kind of from my perspective, building strength is building the body's ability to move, to create force, to move stuff, to do work. And what the phase program is that I have people go through, I do have my athletes go through a phase strength and conditioning program. And it usually starts around this time of year. And it did, it did come from my training for, for wildland firefighting because you traditionally get done with fire season around, you know, September, October, and then you start to kind of physically, you kind of, put, you kind of lose a lot of muscle mass and, and you actually are kind of like, in a sense, losing some strength during the course of the season because you're just getting so worked to the point where all you can do is just survive and maintain and get through the season. And then you're kind of like, at, you have to start over. And especially for me, I had to put on a lot of muscle weight in order to be able to qualify as a smoke jumper. So I had to work on strength. So over the course of the winter, what I have people do is I have them work on traditional strength build where they actually do um, work on traditional foundational loads and they start to put that load through the chassis, be able to 
with good mechanics move more and more and more weight. And that type of training, the type of training where you're doing slow, you know, slow repetitions, high loads, and you're increasing those loads, that actually helps to improve the strength of your connective tissue. So not even thinking about like muscle yet, like it actually helps to build up the strength of your connective tissue. So your body is building on more levels than just your muscle strength here. And I think that's one thing that people maybe don't really quite know that that's what's such an important piece of it. But going through a strength build, then you can start to add in, you start to get all that anatomical adaptation and you start to get the form down. Then you can start adding in the speed piece of it that can be kind of like a power phase where your concentric piece is a little bit faster. You're moving a little bit faster with maybe the same load or slightly less, or maybe even sometimes more if we're going into actually getting like max out two to three rep max type of power lift. That type of high velocity contraction is your muscle and your, those soft tissues pulling on your bone. And it's muscles that are contracting, pulling on your bone that make your bones stronger. Mm -hmm. So there's different things that make your bones stronger, like definitely loading, like axial load makes your bones stronger and your muscles pulling on your bone will make your bones stronger. So that piece is so incredibly critical for not just athletes, but just, I mean, everyone, especially like women and, but men too. I mean, I've seen more stress fractures in the endurance athlete community men in this last year and a half than I've ever seen. And they were all endurance athletes that were um, building up to like big events. And they're all men with high metabolic cost activities. And, and so you, in a sense, like that's a really important piece, right? It's just building up your bone. And that's going to be a lifelong project, building up that bone mass. And then after you've worked through that power phase is like, really, then you start to get into the springtime and you're starting to get closer and closer to the, the race, the race season. And then for us, what we do is we start to work more on what I call power endurance, um, which is higher velocity, more intense, more of those like kind of higher repetition, higher um, uh, intensity interval type training. And that piece then you start to get to actually refining that muscle mass. And so your muscle mass, you've built up the amount of force that you can move, which you could only do by a progressive overload. Then you start to work on how fast you can do that, that contraction, your, your power, which is really important for like powering up a hill, be able to accelerate your body mass up a hill. Um, and then after that, then you're starting to work on just being able to do that over and over and over and over and over again. And you, you get somewhat of an anaerobic component to that. And what's really fun about that piece is that you do feel that anaerobic component and you start to work on um, your fast twitch muscle fibers, which we sometimes don't get enough of that work in our endurance life. Um, and it complements sort of the speed training, like reps or intervals, it complements it really well. Um, and so by that last piece, like you're really starting to get into this, like, you're, you're also getting into really good shape. Like typically I'll tell my athletes, like, don't be surprised if you put on some weight during the strength and the power builds. But then when we start to get to power endurance, sometimes you'll start to actually like cut down any of that extra weight, like any fat um, that you put on dur during your um, anabolic style training. And, and that's, and so it's, it's really important because you're building up all the different components and that whole chassis, that whole structure gets stronger. And then you can really start to refine that in your workouts. Like once you get to the summertime, your high intensity, like hill reps, you know, intervals, that stuff, absolutely, you're still going to be working on like specific power, specific strength when you're doing, you're out in the mountains doing your, your training, but your durability has just gone through the roof. And I, I don't know if, 
you know, I think most people know at this this stage, you know, it's like, yeah, when you're running, you're hitting the ground at this higher velocity. So it's not just your body weight. You're also absorbing the shock of three times your body weight. You go downhill, that's even higher. If you want to perform well over a really long distance, you need to have a durable body. Your body needs to be resilient. And what I love about it, like since we've been doing this, is the people that I work with, the the athletes that I work with, and I get to get to watch them over the course of the year, even if they're doing their first ultra or, you know, their fifth ultra, they come out of those ultras and they're ready to run again, like mm-hmm. within the week. Like their recovery time is so much different and their experience is different when they're out on the run course because they didn't just run and run and run and run to get there. They actually, you know, train their body to do like a little bit more, you know, to take on a little bit more load. And so as they're fatiguing, they still can tap into that. Mm-hmm. I think it's that and then the other pieces that they're in, you know, knock on wood, but they're doing so good at not getting injured. And I think we we have, you know, we have a, a, a good group. A lot of them actually do not have, some of them don't have any experience weightlifting when they come and start working with me. And so they have to learn how to do a squat or a deadlift without hurting them or loading their back. They have to learn how to like shift their weight back in their heels, get the bar up against their legs to do a deadlift and engage the rotator cuff. Like they have to learn those different pieces. They have to learn when to exhale and so that they don't hurt their backs, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they'll send me videos and I'll be able to give them feedback. Like, yeah, you need to, this is like the three things you need to do. Send me the video, they've got it. And then they can like, they'll be able to tap into the power of their glutes and be able to get a lot better at lifting. But that piece has been so incredible for me. I love that part of it. And I, I know you've, you've heard of like Sally McCray. A lot of people now are coming to me like they just started learning this because of her. And I think that's really inspiring mm-hmm. because like, I don't even know when I was in PT school learning this stuff in Portland with Dave, you know, he was teach. he said back then with the Nike Oregon project, they didn't need to do a lot of the anaerobic training, like the plyometrics and the power, high intensity interval, like CrossFit style stuff. They didn't need to do that because they're running their anaerobic for their anaerobic fitness. Like they get that, that high speed from their running. They don't need to worry about that. They have to work on their heavy, heavy lifting because they need to be able to build up the strength of all of their tissues and their body. And um, that was kind of new research back then. That was like 20, that was 2014. That was almost 10 years ago now that Mm -hmm. that was just starting. And at that time he was like, you know, everybody was already critical of Nike Oregon Project at that time. But like those kids would come in there and like lift. Jordan Hesse at that time, she's like, I think she's running marathons now. She was, she was lifting, she was deadlifting and she was like probably five foot four and weighs like a hundred pounds. She was deadlifting twice her body weight to see that little, you know, whip basically picking up 210 pounds was like mind blowing to me. And that's what like made me realize is like this in, at that time, Dave was saying everybody in the world is criticizing this. Like yeah, they, Allison Felix too. I remember Allison Felix. Yeah. I, she, yeah. I, I same remember, thing. I remember seeing that. I was like, what? Oh and the sprinters always did lift mm-hmm. pretty. I mean, they always did a lot of powerlifting and whatnot. But yeah, she is ripped. And mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just can't even believe it. They don't look real in person. Galen Rupp, same thing. Like come in and they would do these heavy, heavy, heavy lifts. And it was like, it was unbelievable what they could do, you know, because they're they're runners and they look like all sinewy. And, and um. but again, he was basically saying like, everyone in the world is criticizing this strategy because they don't understand it yet. And so they're thinking that we're doing it wrong and they're not going to follow in our footsteps. 
But then after that, I think a lot of research started to come out that was pointing in that direction that this is where runners need to get to because anaerobically, they're going to get that training where they're running. They don't need to work on the high intensity interval training in the gym or the high repetition, low resistance band stuff that you were talking about (laughs) is not going to get you anywhere. Like, so that's the piece of this, like building up the actual system. When you look at physical therapy and you're looking at a damaged tissue or an injured tissue, then you have to titrate the loads or somebody who doesn't have the experience or has a injury in the past. Then you have to think about how do I make this this activity easier? How do I build them up to be able to do the activity mm-hmm. and then overload it so they can do the activity over and over and over again before they get hurt? And it's taking off those loads and isolating certain things where you get some of that like stability training, some of the um, like some of the band work and some of that that piece, I think that's the component that sort of supports or supplements like an actual like strength and conditioning program. So there is that component to it. I think the way that I look at it is you like if you're in a gym routine, what it would look like is you basically have your warm up. You have your you want it like we would do like a strength or your power stuff first, like your heavy stuff that you could most you have to do when you're fresh and you need to move them out most amount of weight if you want most amount of gain. And then I always have my athletes do some, de- some degree of stability where they're still doing like kettlebells, like, but single leg, single arm type stuff right. to balance out their asymmetries or to make sure that they're still getting the neuromuscular coordination between muscle groups. And so they're doing that like year round. They're still, they're still supporting that big, that big piece. That big piece is still probably only maybe 30% of the whole program, but it's an important piece. And I think that's the piece that's the first piece to go in terms of um, at least for runners, I think, but I mean, I, I'm surprised, I'm surprised how many people don't do it in general. Mm-hmm. And so much so yeah, that like the whole, uh, you know, hybrid athlete, I'm like, I, it's a, that's a big eye roll for me. Um, what's a hybrid athlete hybrid? That, well, that's what they call Sally McRae or, uh, oh. Nick bear or whatever. Someone who lifts and runs. And I'm like, that's just called an athlete. <laughs> Like, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a marketing turn and that's fine. I mean, like you said, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, Sally's really turning people, pulling a lot of people in the sport, you know, and then, uh, turning them onto this thing. Cause she's got that strength training app and, uh, and she's like running all these races and then she'll go lift a bunch of weights, you know, she's like, I gotta put on a bunch of weight before I go back and go do another 200. Um, so she has, you know, and she likes to do it too. So that's, that's great. And she, it's the opposite of what I'm talking about, which is like, you know, if you go on YouTube and you do like strength routine for runners, then you're going to see some marathoner and they're going to have like, they might have four bands on them at one time. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> like, it's like, they're going to go into slingshot competition. That's fine. <laughs> but like, I'm like, mm, I don't know what you're doing there. It looks tough. Yeah. There's, and there, I mean, there are, there's myriad ways of getting at the same, you know, at the same mm-hmm. thing in terms of like supplemental training and in, in terms of like getting to the start line. And I, and I, and I agree, like sometimes there's so much, if you, if you look at like the general athlete, you know, and what their, their work schedule is, right. I mean, Mm -hmm. general athlete, meaning that they're, they're an athlete like, um, recreationally and they're not professionally running or they're not sponsored, or maybe they are sponsored, but they still have to work full time. Um, those of us that have that full life outside of running, 
have to figure out how to optimize all of the different things. And it's just like what you said with that triathlete. He is running that rate or riding that razor's edge between falling off and completely imploding and actually like, um, you know, getting to be the best in the world every single day of his life. And there's only going to be so long that he can balance that line before the body starts to break down or he starts to get older and he needs to do that maintenance. And so it's different for every body. Like that's what is really important to understand. I think for everyone is that your body is, is, is different. But I think that being said is that overall, I guess what you can, what you can see is if you want to optimize your training, you can absolutely do some supplementals and you're going to see an improvement in your injury resilience and your durability. And you're going to be able to keep running every week. And again, going back to that consistency over time, that training stress score is keeping that relatively in that same range and maybe gradually increasing that over the years. I mean, that's what you see between an elite athlete being able to maintain a three to five ramp rate and a, like a, you know, an average athlete or a new athlete, maybe doing a ramp rate of one is that that elite athlete might be ramping up because they have been doing a training stress. They have been able to do 70 to 80 mile weeks for ages and ages and ages, and they just had a race. And now they're ramping back up to what is their average, which mm -hmm. is that 70 to 80 miles weeks or whatever, 100 mile weeks, I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I think the um, there's definitely studies that show like, yeah, 5K, if you do some strength training in addition to a 5K, your 5K time is going to get so much faster. You know, if you do this and then your perceived effort is going to be faster, your time to exhaustion is going to go down. Like there's there's definitely um, things with short distance racing where it's very clear. I think it's I think it's people get skeptical when they start thinking about endurance running. They're yeah. like, I have to run 10, 15 hours a week. Like, right. I don't have time. To put four more hours of yeah, lifting. Well, how is yeah. lifting? It's going to yeah. make me sometimes people think it's going to make me heavier. It's going to make it harder for me to run a longer distance. Yeah. There's a lot of myths and like sort yeah, of yeah, like yeah. I think there's a lot of things to unravel in in that strength training yeah. piece. Um I think that one of my favorite metaphors that people use is like people saying I don't want to get too bulky. It's like saying I don't want to start budgeting because then I might accidentally get too rich. <laughs> it's like you're not going to accidentally put on a <laughs> yeah, ton of muscle. There's people whose whole physical output is just trying to put on more muscle and it is very tough for them so true that actually is a really good point is that going back to the nike organ project back when nobody believed in heavy strength training and they mm -hmm. were doing it kind of out of like experimental sort of level those guys that was part of it that dave was like these and they were absolutely running so much i mean i don't even know how many miles or hours they run but they're professional runners they literally live to run they're running twice a day i mean at crazy paces, like their rest, their you know recovery pace, like six minute mile, and they would go. They would be running so much there was no way that they could put on any additional muscle mass. They were basically basically just asking that muscle mass to recruit more of the fibers you already have to mm. be able to move more mass. So it's it's a it was a neuromuscular thing that they were getting out of that. Like basically, it was more of like a power training. They had the strength foundation, so those guys were doing more power training, where it was like you know, a higher, like a, like a higher, um, speed concentric phase. And, and that piece I thought was so interesting. I never realized that I was like, of course, you're not going to bulk up as an endurance athlete because you have, you're putting in so many hours, yeah. so much time out, just like running around metabolically. You get the interference effect as you well. Have the, you can't. Yeah. And if they're the doing anabolic. two a days, 
you're doing, you know, if they're doing two a days too, then it's like, there's no room to like put space between your weightlifting and your running. Right. It's not, it's constantly, you're constantly in that like catabolic state. Like you're, you have to work really hard and eat just at the right time and all of the stuff to put on muscle, as you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's so hard. It's yeah. so hard. I mean, yeah. that was like one of the hardest things I've ever done was I had to put on like 15 pounds of muscle in order to qualify to wow. be a jumper. Wow. Because I didn't weigh enough to weigh 120 to be able to qualify and weigh in to be able to get through. And so I think that piece is really misunderstood by runners. And I wish that I wish that more people, I think now more kids are learning earlier on that the heavier lifting is going to help with their health in the long run. But I mean, if, you know, I, I just wish that more runners had that perspective of, you know, knowing or working with like women that are in their or men in their 80s and, or 70s or even 60s sometimes that are osteopenic, yeah. Yeah. osteoporosis, and they're brittle and they're very, very fragile. Mm -hmm. And we set ourselves our entire life. Well, you see it here. You know, you go to the Albertsons in the iced over parking lot and someone falls, they can't catch themselves, you know, and they're just like, like, yeah, that's, yeah. It's like a broken everything waiting to happen. It's awful. Yeah. And you just, I mean, I see, like we see it. I have a friend right now I run with. He's 50 some odd years old and he's late fifties, you know, osteopenic, didn't know back in his forties that that's how you solve it is to start yeah. loading and lifting heavy. He was like, I run, that's loading, but that's, it's a high metabolic cost activity you're not getting the same amount of mm -hmm. like, yeah, of overload, the progressive overload that you need in order to get everything strong. So. Yeah, and I'm not sure where the science was, it still is on this, but it used to be that like, I would remember people saying that, it, you know, around that early 20s was like the last time you could put on like some, I mean, you could always put on some uh, work on your bone density, but like that early 20s was like the sweet spot or the last, the last hurrah for you to put, put big, really put big effort into it. And so, my son's around that age. And so I'm like, I was like, yeah, you go for it. Lift weights. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. That was the perfect time. Yes, I know. I think absolutely you like you hit the nail on the head is that you can continue to um, like we can you can offset the the reduction in our in our bone density and the reduction in our fast twitch muscle fiber and that um, like um, you like glyco glycolytic muscle fiber. You can you can continue to maintain that for a really long time as long as you work on it but as we get older you can't you can't have you can't reverse all of that as you know you you have to work really hard to maintain your muscle mass and to maintain fast twitch muscle your power your speed start to decline i mean there's all of these things that are relatively depressing that start happening as we age and the sooner that you can get on that the better because you're going to set yourself up for life in your 20s and in, even into your 30s like being able to get on a really strong program of of just loading the body and preparing it and the the honestly the, the 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 people i work with in pt that are living the best lives in their post you know like retirement years are people who are taking on exercise and activity as a necessity in their lives and they're doing a lot of it you know they're absolutely all in on the, the activity and the people who are doing the worst are the people obviously who are going to end up you know meeting the bare minimum for um their fitness or they're gonna be very sedentary mm -hmm. and it's it's a very it's a very clear thing and so but i guess in terms of ultra running and, and ultra runners and athletes in general that we're talking about today like i think it's really important the strength and conditioning pieces is, is it's bigger than we even like knew 10 years ago mm -hmm. and there's a lot more options for it there's not Right. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, as structured as like the athletes that I work with, 
but it is a really important component. And if you can get on it and, and learn about it and then phase your program so it doesn't get boring, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to get that into your life. Yeah. And it does help with running. Okay. We kind of run over a little bit, but can I, I want to ask you one more question okay. just on this so we can close out this part. Sounds good. Um, the, when you're, so it sounds like you kind of have a periodized approach to the strength training starting in the off season or, you know, the kind of the natural late fall or something like that. Yep. And then coming into early season, uh, shifting that towards more of the, the power and speed, I guess, or, um, it's faster force production, I guess. Yeah, yep. And uh, so when you're doing that, are you flexing the, um, the, the aerobic component as well to like make room for that adaptation? Like you're kind of like bringing down the run volume to accommodate that or does it stay the same and just like less intensity or oh, how, do, how does that work together? Question. Yeah, that's a, that's, a per, that's a wonderful question. And I really do think that that was one of my that was that's always the biggest struggle is how do you how do you phase the running program and the strength training program so that they're going to complement each other and what i've always sort of traditionally done and this is not necessarily the way that like jason coop and some of the other athletes or um, coaches do is we would always sort of work more on building up the volume of training in the winter time like really as much aerobic time as you can on feet really really easy so your training stress score is high and then you're working on strength training which is like slow lots of heavy lifting um with not lots but like some targeted heavy lifting and then as you start to get closer to the season yes working on more of the speed work and then adding in like that higher performance aspect and then like basically your volume of running would reduce as your intensity goes up and that kind of is about what you would see in a normal program for somebody who has one key race is that you would see the volume of running no matter if you're doing strength training or not your volume of running would generally um be high intensity like just a small portion like maybe like a 90 10 splits and then as you get closer and closer you might have more like a 25 75 or a 20 80 split of like intensity compared to your total volume and then your overall volume decreasing down. Um, it's in real life, it's a little bit more inner. It's more personalized than that. It depends on person, depends on when their events are. It depends on how um, many events that they're building up for. But you're absolutely right. But I would probably at this stage now, I have people start right away on the higher intensity running. I don't do just volume, volume, volume. We continue to monitor volume based on all those different things. You can monitor volume on different things. But I, I really do have people work on the higher speed repetitions and the more like kind of anaerobic, you know, tempo slash interval workouts along with all of their other, you know, hill training or endurance training. And we do that kind of for the, throughout, the, throughout the period. And for the people who are doing longer distance events, those workouts will end up, for me, they end up getting longer. And so let's say, for example, you're talking to like a marathon to a 50K runner it's very common to do workouts that are like four times two miles with a mile off. And then you do that, you know, you're working on not like the fastest pace ever, but you're working at trying to maintain a little bit faster than your marathon, a little bit faster than your 50K pace. And now I really love those longer, longer, longer workouts. I think that's a really great way to start to work on the intensity that you encounter during a race for a longer period of time. And then you can work on your nutrition at a higher intensity, which is a really hard thing to get if you're yeah. always training low intensity and trying to race at high intensity. So there's 
that component, I think, is where it just becomes dependent on the person's distance and whatnot. It's how we kind of titrate those different loads, how we prioritize workouts even within the day. Like, do you prioritize your strength training or your run? If it's somebody who's like struggling to get a mile and a half uh, um, speed for smoke jumper rookie training and they're really, really strong, even though it's like for most people right then, maybe the like power endurance is the is the priority. Maybe for that person, the higher speed running or the running in general is their priority because they have all the strength they need. Now they just need to work on speed. So that's sorry, that's such a like a wish washy answer, but it oh, is like that's one of the art. I think that's part of the art of of like of coaching. And it's in and I am learning all the time from different types of athletes and they're different. Every year is different with every athlete, like how they're going to set up their structure and their their race season. And for myself too, it's like, how am I going to, when is my key event? And then what are the events that will lead up to that? And when do I need to have the most amount of focus on just running speed and my running workouts and then just transition to more like a maintenance functional stability program for the summer? And so that's now that people are racing more and more all year round, it gets harder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a rough. little tricky. <laughs> it's rough. Yeah. And but, you know, it's also, it's like you get to the summer and you're like, Oh, it's so nice out. Nobody wants to be in the gym anymore. Yeah. So we don't do any gym workouts mostly in the summers. Yeah, I think I'll ride my bike to Hamilton today or something, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so what is what do you have next? Oh my gosh. Or are you still trying to figure it out? Or? I am trying to figure it out. I this um this year, and I've I've honestly wanted to do UTMB for a really, really long time. And the actual full UNT, UTMB event, like the hundred miler. Mm -hmm. And, um, like since the time, well, nobody's going to crucify you now. <laughs> if each other, you know. I know. I don't know where that's all going. I guess yeah. we'll all wait, wait a few months see. to cool yeah, off. See how that yeah. all goes. Yeah. So in a sense, I, I've been thinking about that. Um, but my next event, most likely, you know, for like kind of a key, like September event, that long distance might be really nice kind of in September. But, um, I am thinking about going back to Rufa running up for air sent Mount Sentinel. Yeah. Which I've done twice now. And I just love that event. It's February 13th You killed it this last year. time. What did you do, 10 times? Thank you. I, I got 10 laps this last year. 10 was... laps, 10 weeks out from your surgery? From my elbow surgery, yeah. Not, yeah, you Which, were, uh, it didn't was, you have like a, a I swing? had my brace on, yeah, because yeah, I, I had to, I wasn't, I it was still unstable enough. I could not fall on it, and I shouldn't have been doing that. And should have been training for that, but I really... It was really a good mental thing for me to get out on the mountain all the time. Yeah. And I love that event because it, it pushes you to get out in the mountains in the winter and like and push that leg strength and like yeah. be out. I mean, there's no other thing that would motivate me to go out and run in the snow for 10 hours than training. In February. For that, training for that 12 hour race. Yeah. I love that race. And it's fun because there's so many locals who do so it. So you are going to do it? I think so. But the 12 hour? I Yeah. Last two times I've done 12 hour. And it's did fun. you do the three, six? I did the 12 hours. You yeah. did 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to do it? I don't know. It's a lot to ask. It's... I mean, you know, and, I, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm, I don't have my season planned out. So I'm like, I might do the marathon. Oh, so I'm yeah. like, am I going to do 12 hours on the side of the mountain? I mean, I don't think it'd take, it's not going to take much out of me, but because I'm not, I can't just kill it up and down that thing like some people. It still takes a lot though. I mean, yeah. It is a lot of of output of energy. Well, I just walk up and down and eat a lot of pancakes, yeah. you know? So it's true. You can, you can, that's what I love about it is that you can sign up for the three hour, do one lap, have some pancakes and go home. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, you could do I the, can do 12 hour walk yeah, up and down one time and eat pancakes. Exactly. You really could because it's really just a fundraiser and it's for fun. And like so many, so many more people are coming out now and it's, it's really fun. Yeah. 
Um, and then, yeah, are you going to do any specific long run next year? Do you have a... Well, so what I... I wanted to talk about you with planning out a year. It's a little long now, but like Sorry. one of the things is like, you know, I wanted this year put my, it seems like I do better. I'm most fit in the fall. So I'm like, Everybody. why do you keep signing up for early summer races if you're so good in the fall? And I was like, okay, well, let's do something in the fall. And I was like, well, Tushers, which you did. So, I thought about doing that one. Gosh. That looks sick. So um, Or Bear or I Am Tough. Wow. Yeah. So. One of those three. Good idea. Well, no, but I, wait, Tushers is earlier, right? That's it in is. July. It's, it's, it's the same as crazy, I think. It is. Yeah. And so, like, you could even use Tushers. Like, I used Tushers as my last peak run before TDS this year. Uh-huh. Um, that is such a ridiculously hard event because of the altitude. I've yeah. never... <laughs> well, I saw even Nick Curry, he was doing a video of it, and he was like, this is... <laughs> he lives right there, you know? Oh, I know. I and mean, he was incredible. There, I mean, it is. It's. I don't know how it. you could do that event and not spend a couple of weeks out there training at that altitude because it's at it starts out over ten thousand feet mm-hmm. and you're pretty much at ten thousand feet. You go up to twelve. Yeah. You go down to like eighty five, but yeah. it's brutal and it's hot. It's hot even up there at that time of year in Utah. Well, I did not Grant, know that. If Grant gets into crazy, I'm I'm supposed to pace him. Yeah. I'm at, gonna pace him at that at Crazy Mountain. So we'll at see. Crazy, yeah. yeah. And Crazy is that same weekend, end of July, and then I'm tough and Bear are in September. Correct? Right. Yeah. yeah. We're both really hard and I mean, everybody loves, they all love them. They all love yeah. those races. Yeah. Those look really cool. And they're, you know, I don't, I kind of want to, you know, I want to do stuff that's close to here Yeah. and iconic. And I'm like, I've heard of bear a bunch of times. So it's like, maybe we should do that one. Well, I, I think that's, I think that's really, I think that's really smart. And we can talk later about, about, you know, any specifics on those two, but it is really great to like come up with that key event and then think about the distance between that. This is what I have people doing. What I talked to Grant this morning about is how do you, you know, where do you want that peak run to be? Like in, in before your last, your event, your peak event. And you have to kind of, you have to sort of know that that event is a, is a, is a, is a kind of build up event for your peak run. So it, you can't put everything into peaking for your peak run. It has to be like that distance. And then you have to have it just timed enough that you can kind of taper it off into your peak, your peak run. And it's different for different people with more experience. You might be able to have that peak run be at three weeks out from your hundred mile race and have like a hundred K three weeks out, have it just like kind of go right recovery, go right into your taper and have it be perfect for that last long run. For other people, you might need six weeks or even eight weeks to have a recover and then build back up before Mm -hmm. you taper. Um, And so I think it's being realistic about what you've seen yourself do in the past. Um, Typically I have done more of like the three to four weeks out for my last peak run. And I think for you or for, for your athletes? me, okay. for me, and then for my athletes, I would probably for Grant. He has a little bit more experience now with the hundred, like longer distance stuff, and so for athletes like that, they can get away sometimes with doing closer to like the four week out, and then have like that little bit more of just that easy transition into the the taper. And it's hard when you start getting six weeks out because you have this recovery period that for a hundred k sometimes can last almost three weeks. And then if you're going straight into a taper, you've just spent six weeks not at volume and you're going to end up being, you're going to end up losing fitness. Mm -hmm. So that's the hardest thing about races is you taper and then you recover and you have to take into account that taper and recover for every race. So if you're over racing, you're going to actually be, you're going to end up kind of losing your fitness. So it's almost better to slide in sideways, like almost a little under tapered, which is the opposite of what I've always heard, which is like, 
it's better to show up like over rested than over than uh you know like com really really fit but maybe your was it your uh, acute is in a negative or something your fitness yes. your freshness yeah your freshness being in the negative so yeah cuz yeah it makes sense cuz i don't, i would think i would get into trouble with like if it were 6 weeks out i would be like if it re went really well say 100k and then then i'd be like oh okay i could get two more weeks of building in here <laughs> or something like yeah, that yeah. you know but more likely what would happen is what you're describing is like you're like, oh, maybe you get sick because you've been around people and you're dipping into the communal whatever. And you're traveling. Or yeah, something. you're traveling, going across time zones in yes. airports, whatever. Yeah. Get sick. Then it's time to taper. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good one. I don't know. I guess, So that's what I would look at. And I would probably for somebody like you, I would and, you know, in like you do have to take into account that like life stress is going to come up, that other things are going to take some of that like resiliency away. Like it always does. And the closer you get to your event, the more you just want to be like, full. I think you really do want to be overly rested and you want that training and you want your form to be in the positive. Mm -hmm. Like and the date on the weekly basis. Yeah. You want that negative. Cause then that actually shows that you're like, you're, you're making some changes in terms of fitness. But when you start to get closer to that race, you want that form to peak and be like in the twenties. Mm -hmm. So like you do want to be rested, but I, you don't like I, I will see people that will like full on just completely fall off their training program for three weeks. And that's mm. like that's not really ideal because you really are going to end up losing fitness and load tolerance. You get there race day and you're going to slot. You're going to feel pretty sluggish, you know. But then if you if you do 100K, you know, eight weeks out, you still have the 100K in your system. I mean, you're going to still have time to recover and do a little bit of a build and then taper. Mm -hmm. So I think there's like you want it to be either close enough that it goes straight into your straight into your taper mm -hmm. or long enough out that you have time to recover and then build back up before you taper. Mm -hmm. So I think there I think I think you could kind of like, you know, depending on like what you're look, looking for, you might be able to get something in like in June like for something like you know, I'm tough or you're looking at bear, you might be able to get like a bighorn 50 miler in, for example. Ooh. And that's a really wonderful 50 oh, mile. Yeah. Or one that I love, um, you know, like uh, one of the 100 Ks that I did once that I actually really love, even though it was the worst year for snow ever, was River of No Return 100 K, which is a okay. really hard 100 K. And, um, and an Paul Lind, yeah, is yeah. the race director and it's in Chalice, Idaho. And it's a lot of gain. It's a lot of really beautiful country. Hi lots of climbing and we just had a ridiculous snow year and it took forever and I was just slogging. But typically, I mean, that race is just incredible. And that's like kind of one of those events you're going to finish and you're going to like shake Paul's hand. Like the race director is going to be there. You mm -hmm. know, I love that. That's an amazing race. Beaverhead endurance runs. Those are amazing races. That would be another really good like 100K event that you could get away with and still like have a wonderful experience get to meet the race director and then go on and be ready for that hundred miler later in the season. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Of course. Let I'm me... glad to talk about it. Thanks for making it all the way through you endurance animal. I'll put a link in the show notes for Christina's website. So you can find out more about her coaching and more about her. And I'll talk to you tomorrow.